coming. If you have a Bible, there's a couple places you can get ready for. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8. We're going to be in Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2. So quite a little bit of jumping around, but you can just uh, bear with me on that. Hey, if you're a guest, like Ryan said, thank you for being here. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. We're in a series uh, that we've been in for, since the beginning of the year, walking through some of the core beliefs that we have as a church. We're calling it What We Believe, and we walk through each of these based on what the Bible says. And one thing I'd love for you to know about this church we desire deeply to simply study what the scriptures say. Um, we don't want to rely on what other people tell us uh, or their interpretations always, though they're helpful at times. Friends, you're about to hear someone's interpretation, so it's, it's helpful. But we want our people to be in the word of God, studying it and what it says and what it means and how we live this out, journeying with Jesus individually but together as a church family as well. So today we're going to continue that series and we're going to talk about... Um, what we believe about salvation. So let's pray and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for your word. We're honored to be in your presence, God. We're honored to have access to your word. We're grateful. God, I don't believe there's anything in all of creation that can change a mind or a heart like the word of God. And so my prayer this morning as we open it, that we would be receptive, that we would have the ears to hear and God, that your word would penetrate our hearts and our minds, that when we leave here, we really would be different than when we arrived. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, when you study this idea, the starting place is really understanding the need for salvation. And if you study the Bible, you know that all of history is kind of bookended between these two incredible places. One, Eden this garden that God created in the beginning, and the other we would call the new heavens and the new earth, or you might even say it's the new Eden, right? And, and in between that, that, this rough patch in the middle between Eden and the new Eden is this chaotic middle that we now live in, and we're haunted by visions of these two places. We see what God created and what it was meant to be, and we see what God is intending to do when uh, the return of Christ, and we live in the middle, and we're just kind of like, ah, like, I want that. So whether it's suffering that strikes, be it from a terrorist or a school shooting that's 10 minutes from my hometown this past week, where 17 people are killed, and you see that, and it weighs heavy on your heart, or maybe it's just the evil that you battle with in your own heart, the struggles that you have during the week when no one else knows what you're thinking or what you're battling, those struggles that happen inside of you, we get this feeling that this is not the way that the world was meant to be. This is not what was intended to be when God created this place. So we want suffering to end, but we also know that suffering can't. It just can't have been a part of the original design. And so we long for this place called Eden. See, the paradise of Eden, when it was created, God created this place. It was to be perfect. And all the joy of life was to be explored in Eden, right? Whether it's work or relationships with others, your relationship with God, hard work, light work, rest, everything was to be understood and enjoyed in this wonderful place called Eden where everything was perfect and good. And God created this place. Now, you understand when you think about Eden, our desire for it. I mean, just think about the way that we advertise for different things. A simple Google search of Disney World will pull up some of the biggest smiles you've ever seen in your life, right? Or you look up, a, you want to go on a cruise or to a tropical place where you can arrive and if you can just get to this place, it's just so happy and relaxing. You wake up on a cold, wet day, and you think a beach, a hammock, and the ocean breeze would feel great. Like we advertise it, but you know this, right? Anybody with kids who's ever actually been to Disney World, you understand, right? The advertisements are one thing, but it's not like a force field of happiness that you cross over, 
No, what I've learned about Disney World is that as we cross the barrier of the happiest place on earth, my kids are fully capable of throwing a temper tantrum just like they were when we were back home. Disney doesn't change what's gone wrong. You know this too. You arrive at your tropical destination. You arrive at your vacation place and you come to realize that, hey, we can throw down in this marriage World War III just like we do at home, but we can do it on the beach as well. See, there's something about these places that we arrive at We know that it disappoints. And even though our experiences disappoint us, our longing for paradise, it endures. Our longing for what was lost and what is to come is still there. Why? Because I think it's because Eden was a real place. It's not some fairy tale. This place that God created where perfection was and satisfaction was completely to be enjoyed was an actual real place. And the Bible talks about when God created it, everything that he created was good, and then he creates man and woman, and he says what? It is what? Very good. I got three of you. I had two in first service, so it's a step up, but come on. He says that it was very good when he created them, and he puts them in this perfect relationship, and in his deep love for them, he gives them a choice. And he says, you can choose these desires that you have, or you can choose me, but I'm telling you, if you go this path, it will hurt you, and I don't want you to be hurt. And then you know in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve choose that path and sin enters the world. And when sin entered the world, it plagued them and all of creation and it created a gap because God could no longer be in perfect relationship with sin. He could not be in the presence of sin. He had to kick them out of Eden. And the moment they crossed the threshold of leaving Eden, they longed to be back. And that's where we live. We live in this longing, this desire for Eden. And it plays out in our life in a variety of ways. You can see it in your own life, in your own heart. We can see it in our culture. I'm going to give you three ways that I see as we live this longing for Eden uh, play out. The first one is this. It's just simply a paradise has been lost. And when we recognize we can't get back, we just try to look for the next Eden. And so we spend our life searching for it, and we work hard, and we save our money. This is what, this is what they were, uh, Cortez was looking for among the Aztecs. Ponce de Leon was looking for in Florida. It's what we're looking for in our retirement funds, right? If I can save this amount and get to this percentage, then I'll get to this place of complete rest, and I'll ride through the end of my days, and there'll be comfort. This is what we think about with our kids. If I can just get them here or make them do this, then I'm going to arrive at this paradise called parenting, which eventually, from what I understand, turns into friendship, and it's just blissful and awesome. And if we just arrive at that place, that's going to be Eden. But you understand There is no paradise after Eden. Mike Cosper says it this way, there is no paradise after Eden, no corner where the uh, the curse's cruel tentacles haven't spread. But in Christ, there's hope for such a place. In him, we can all get back to Eden. So we search and we long for it, and it's there. And look, if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian this morning, you understand that longing for what this can't be all there is. I, I want more. There's got to be more. And so we search for it and we try to find this new Eden when it We're left continuing the search. We spend all of our days searching, never to find that satisfaction. Today's a day of encouragement, friends. The next way that we look at this longing for Eden is we flip the script. We just change the narrative. And this is a popular way. When we're left longing for Eden, and we feel the pain of sin, our sin, and the sin that others have done to us, and we experience that pain, a lot of the times, instead of searching for something better, we just say, well, maybe sin's a good thing. I mean, we all need to mature and grow up, right? So maybe the fall was a necessary thing because it matures us and helps us grow into what we're actually created to be. And we twist and we turn the message of sin into something that maybe it's a good thing and we could get stronger and better and more mature. Sin is good. 
Right? Garrison Keillor, a famous American storyteller, he says this about the fall, specifically talking about the fall of man, the sin entering the world. He said, it's a necessary sin, since humankind wasn't meant to remain as children in the nursery garden, but meant by God to live real lives, as though real lives can only happen when you come to a place of, of reason after you've experienced sin. You see this in the movies. You see this in the stories that we tell. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Pleasantville. Pleasantville, is a, it's, it's a funny, goofy little movie, but the, the premise of it is there's this town, this make-believe town called Pleasantville, and these two kids, brother and sister, are watching a black-and-white television show called Pleasantville on their TV. And in Pleasantville, everything always goes well, right? They show a clip of the basketball team, the high school basketball team, and each time they take a shot, every shot goes in. No one ever misses, right? And so it's just everybody always does well. Everybody excels. Everyone gets good grades. Every marriage is happy. Every, everybody in the town is always joyful, smiling. Everything's good. And they watch this show. But all of a sudden, in the movie Pleasantville, they get sucked into their television because it's realistic. And they get sucked into their television, and they actually arrive in Pleasantville. But these aren't kids that grew up in Pleasantville. You see, Pleasantville, the TV show, was always in black and white. Everything's in black and white. And they grew up in a world of color. And the movie depicts it as though they grew up in this movie with all these different colors and experiences, and they need to really teach the people of Pleasantville what real life is. And so the, young, the, the high school girl has relationships with one of the guys on the basketball team, and all of a sudden the basketball team sees in color, but they start missing all their shots. But they can see in color, and it's okay, because now we're maturing and we're growing, and you watch as they spread this throughout the town. Pleasantville goes from a black and white TV show to a color TV show, and it's celebrated that this is a good thing. The problem with Pleasantville and the problem with Garrison Keillor's idea and the problem with this is that it has a really wrong view of the Garden of Eden. It's got this, this messed up view of paradise as though we were robots pressed down by God instead of loved children in relationship with Him. You see, when we chose sin, it was a choice for less, not more. It was a choice for less, not more. Cosper adds this again. He says, reversing the fall... And this way, it's like a child reacting to losing a toy as a result of misbehavior. Well, she says, I didn't really want it anyway. Many parents have heard that. Pretending that the garden was a cage or a shallow existence might offer some self-important comforts, but it doesn't make the thought of the garden go away. We wrestle with Eden, and even in our wrestling, if our wrestling is an effort to reinterpret its very meaning, it reveals that deep down, the garden still haunts us. We still want more. We still know this can't be it. And it can't be achieved by walking through sin. So if we can't find it in our search and we can't reinterpret the narrative by just making sin a good thing, what we do is we play God. And we say, if I can't find it and I can't get it through sin, I'll just make my own Eden. And we put a lot of our effort and we express our way in creating. And we say, I know what I need more than anyone else knows what I need, so I can create my own Eden. Or we as a people, as a society, we know what we need more than any God could ever know what we need. And so we'll create our own society, an Eden that's perfect. And so we envision political systems that can create some form of justice that somehow is flawless. Medicines that eradicate every kind of disease, architecture that can withstand any natural disaster. And we seek to create it. Look, the intention's not bad, but the, the, the desire for more is not bad. But the thought that we can achieve perfection, we don't even actually want it. Think about it. In, in the stories that we tell in this world, the idea of perfection, we know we can't get it, so we can't stand it when things are perfect in our stories. Think about the movie Star Wars. We got any Star Wars fans? My son is just getting into it. It's fun. Right? The Death Star was supposed to be what? Invincible. But guess what? It wasn't, was it? Because we couldn't have that story 
if it was perfect. We couldn't have that story go the way that we want it, so we have to write in. Because we know perfection's not attainable, we write it into our stories. Think about the Mission Impossible series. Anybody? I'm, I, it's weird to say Mission Impossible and then to say, am I dating myself? Because like younger people, it's weird. It feels weird. Anyway, Mission Impossible. The idea that the CIA has created an impenetrable, perfect security system. But one of the best scenes ever is watching Tom Cruise lower from the ceiling and defeat that security system. Why? Because perfection's not actually attainable. Right? Or at least our stories don't think it is. Throughout history, we've seen how our efforts at perfection, right? they've been plagued by sin. Here's the problem. We can try our best to create our own Eden, but the looming threat of sin is always there for us. It's always crouching at our door. Our ability at invention is only as powerful as our capacity for evil. Because of the presence of sin around us, we cannot create perfection. When we invented the Titanic, we said it was a ship that could not be sunk. And anyone who put their faith in the Titanic, catastrophe loomed, right? The invention of dynamite by Alfred Nobel. He invented dynamite as an effort to help in coal mining so that we could create better societies. And that has been used for destruction so much so that he was deemed the doctor of death. And that title plagued him so bad that he invented a prize called the Nobel Peace Prize in an effort to combat what his seemingly perfect invention had created. You see, sin always plagues our inventions. We cannot create perfection. We are weak gods, incapable of creating perfection. None of these efforts, as we long for Eden, get us out of the longing for Eden. And so we're left longing for something more. And we come to this place of realizing that our sin has put us in a place that we cannot get ourselves out of. We need a rescuer. We need someone to come into the story, to step into our story, to start rewriting some of this story of sin, to do for us what we are powerless to do for ourselves. And we come to the Bible, and it lays out with clarity who that rescuer is and what it means to accept this gift, a gift you cannot earn, and a gift because of our longing and the sin that has plagued our lives we cannot deserve and do not deserve. And so as we begin to get to Acts chapter 8, I want to lay out two passages for you to kind of come up with a working uh, like a working definition, if you will, to get us through Acts 8 of salvation. Okay? These two passages are found in Ephesians 2 and Colossians chapter 2. Most scholars will tell you that these are what we call parallel passages, meaning the Apostle Paul wrote both of these while in prison. He's writing to two different congregations, but he's covering a lot of the same material. He has a lot of the same thoughts. And so you take these two passages and you can look together at them. Now, friends, you can go to other passages. So you might be thinking, well, if you're going to take two passages to make yourself come up with this definition, what about the context? Context matters. But you can go to Romans chapter 6. You can go to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 16. I'm just choosing Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2. So Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, it says this. It's for grace, by grace, that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now you take this, and now we look at Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse 11 and 12, and it says this. Again, we can go to a lot of other passages. We're choosing Colossians. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So we look at our longing, our desire for more. We need a rescuer. And the Bible lays out this plan. It says you need to be saved from what your sin has created in you. 
And the only way to be saved is by grace, through faith, in baptism, for good works. Okay, we're going to break this down using Acts chapter 8 here in just a moment. But before we ever even get to Acts chapter 8, we've got to start with God's work. What is his role in all of this? And his role is this most beautiful word in the English language, grace. Grace is a gift that you get, you receive, that you do not deserve. You do not deserve grace. Uh, my son just turned one this past week. It was a lot of fun. We had multiple get-togethers with people, and uh, we sat him down, and uh, he got this present that we bought him, and it was all wrapped up, and we're like, Noah, go ahead and open your present. He looked up. He said, before I open my present, Father, let me explain to you. I earned this. <laughs> oh, he can talk. That's great. Like, no, no. He ripped into it and was excited, and he did nothing. He did nothing. He doesn't work. He costs us more than he contributes if it comes to finances. It's worth every single penny, but like you get the point. This gift of grace, he did not. We do nothing to earn grace. There's nothing in us, and we see that as we long, right? We long for Eden, and it shows us that I can do nothing to deserve grace. I can't. Why? Because I've searched for paradise, and I come up empty. I've tried to make sin a good thing, and it just turns out it's not. And then I try to create my own Eden by playing God in my own life, and I come up short every single time. I can't earn this. I don't deserve it because all of my efforts have led to more sin. I don't deserve it. Grace is a beautiful picture of what God does for us that we're powerless to do for ourselves. Grace is the, the foundational piece in all of this. I read this week a true story of a Russian czar who had one of his soldiers, and he, uh, his soldier was dying and said, hey, I want you to take care of my son. And he said, I promise, I will take care of your son. Soldier passes away, and the man, uh, for all intents and purposes, adopts the son. And he gives him all of the best education, all of the best resources, takes care of him. He gets this great stipend. He joins the armies in the military. The problem is, as the son grew older, he developed a, an addiction to gambling. Right? And he was just completely and totally addicted to gambling, his money away, to the point where the addiction got so bad that as he's in the army leading a, some troops, he began to embezzle money from his regiment. True story. And one night, he's sitting there looking at the books and all that he'd embezzled, and he realizes he can't hide it anymore. Like, the next line proves what he's been doing. There's no escape. They're going to find out. And so he begins to drink, heavily, heavily drink. And he gets his revolver out. And he's trying to drink himself to the point where he has the courage to end his own life, except the drink was so strong it knocked him out. So he collapses on top of the books. He's passed out. Well, the... The foster dad, the leader of every night, he would dress up like a regular soldier and he would walk among his troops. And he would walk among the troops so he could hear the morale of his people. And he walks into his foster son's tent and he sees his son passed out and he walks over and he looks at the books and he reads and he realizes what he's been doing. He realizes what's about to happen. And he's frustrated. It's unfortunate. A few hours later, the son wakes up and he realizes the gun's been taken away and there's a note on top of the book and it's a promissory note from the Russian czar. It says, I will pay back every penny from my own bank account. And it has the seal, the official seal of his foster father, who had seen his sin, who knew what his sin would ultimately end in, his death, and took on the payment himself. And I read that and I thought, that is grace. God looks at us and he sees our sin. He sees we're powerless to do anything to fix it. He sees that our sin, according to what the scriptures teach, will end in eternal death. And he says, I'm going to pay for that from my own account. See, friends, that's grace. God's work in all of this is grace. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. 
So we understand, I see my need as I long for Eden. I see what he has done, and how do I respond to it? We're going to look at Acts chapter 8. I'm going to read through the text, and in Acts chapter 8, we're going to see our response to God's work of grace. Okay, Acts chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 26. As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, Go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and he met a treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was now returning. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. So you have this eunuch. He's on his way. He's just left worship. He's reading from the scriptures. Philip is told, go down that road. He happens to run into this guy. According to God's providence, God placed him there, and now he sees him. So the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go walk over beside the chariot, the carriage. So Philip ran over. I love that. He says, go over there. And he says, if I got an opportunity to share the good news, I'm going. And he runs. He heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. And Philip asked him, hey, do you understand what you're reading? Like, do, you, do you understand what it is that you're interacting with there? The man replied, how can I understand this unless somebody teaches it to me? And he urged Philip. He said, come up here. Please sit with me. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading from was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth, and he was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or was he talking about someone else? So beginning with the same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. As they rode along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's some water. Why can't I be baptized? He ordered the carriage to stop, and they went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came out out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch never saw him again, but he left rejoicing. Now, using kind of our definition, let's walk through this. The first thing we have is by grace. Well, the, the phrase by grace indicates that the basis of salvation is grace. Right? God is the basis. What God does is the basis for salvation. There's nothing else, which means nothing you do adds to that base, that foundational base. It is grace and grace alone. It is all that God does. Verse 35 says that that's where Philip started. Philip didn't start and say, go do this, go do this, go do this, based on what you read. He said, do you understand what you read? Let me explain to you this gift of grace. Let me walk you through it. And so they're riding along, and he explains to him what Luke says is the good news of Jesus, the gospel message of grace. He tells him what God has done for you, you can't do for yourself. Well, through faith then indicates that the means by which salvation is received is faith, right? It's our faith, right? It is my faith, and the finished work of Jesus is the means by which I receive salvation. The question that the eunuch asks at the end of this passage, there's, there's water, why can't I be baptized, implies faith. It implies he came to the place where he had that faith, and he sees that time, that point in time. Now look, faith is not something that we do. You don't have faith in your faith. Right? You don't just have faith. I have faith in faith. Like, that's ridiculous. The saving power of faith comes not in your, like you, but in the one in whom you place your faith. The saving power of faith comes not in you and what you do, but in, in the saving power of who you place your faith in. So faith is the means by which we receive salvation. But then you have baptism. In baptism, now baptism is the time in which the grace is initially given. Having faith, the eunuch then indicates that he's ready, that it's time. Like, I have this faith, I'm, now it's time. That's the point in time that received this gift. 
When he knew he had the faith, he said, stop the chariot. I want to stop it right now. I want to get out. There's water. What keeps me from being baptized? I want to be baptized right now. And you read that and you think, okay, well, Rob, if you're including baptism in this whole encounter based on this scripture, if it's a part of the whole thing, wouldn't it be something that we're doing? Isn't it a work? And I would tell you this, baptism is a work, but it's not the work that you're doing. Baptism is a work of God. Baptism is something that God is doing, and what's taking place physically in baptism is happening spiritually by the work of God through his grace. It's the point in time. As a matter of fact, when you read through the New Testament, it never says baptize yourself. The very nature of baptism, you cannot baptize yourself. The the Bible always says be baptized. As a matter of fact, here's this. Baptism is the most passive thing you're going to do in your Christian life. The most passive thing that you do. You yield yourself completely to somebody else. Right? You're completely under the care of somebody else. They're lowering you, and they're raising you back up. Someone else always has to baptize you. But if we reduce baptism to simply an act of obedience that we do sometime after we're saved, if we reduce it to only being that, friends, do you realize that we then make it a work that we're doing for God? See, if baptism, if baptism has nothing to do with this, it's just something I do later on, then it's something I'm doing to show God how grateful I am. But here's the problem with that. The Bible never talks about baptism as though it's something we're doing for God. It always talks about baptism as though it's something he's doing for us. It's completely different. Now, you might say this too. Well, baptism isn't at this public display. It's an outward sign to the public of what's taking place inside. I would say to you that the language behind that indicates that baptism always has to be public. And here's the thing. If it is simply an outward sign of something that's already happened inward, of an inward thing, then yeah, it would have to be public every time. The the problem with that, though, is that when you read through the New Testament, not all the baptisms were done in front of large crowds. Whether it's in the the middle of the night, at midnight, as soon as a, a, a Philippian jailer comes to saving faith, he's baptized in the moment, or it's on the side of the road in a chariot where a guy says, there's enough water for me to be lowered into. What is stopping me? Let's do this. See, it can't simply be those things. There's more going on here in the passage. Don't confuse this, though. This is where confusion sets in. Baptism is not the means by which you receive the grace of God. That's faith. It's not. You receive it. The water is not special. The water doesn't save you. The water doesn't change you. Baptism is simply the moment in time in which you receive that gift. The basis of of salvation is grace. The means is faith. And the moment in time is baptism. And when you come up out of that watery grave, picture this. The whole picture of it is so beautiful. Picture it. You're able to see and think and experience things. You get lowered into the water. As you're lowered into the water, you know that water just covers over you completely. You can no longer see. You can no longer hear. You can no longer experience things. And it's as if you're being buried. You come up out of that water and you can see again and you can hear again. You can think again. It's this beautiful picture of you dying and being raised back to life. It's a beautiful picture of resurrection. It's a beautiful picture of what God's doing in your life in that moment when you receive him. The text says you come up out of that watery grave, you're changed forever. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5 that you're a new creation. He would say that your sins are forgiven and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to this next part. You see, this is all a part of a process. It can't be steps that you do because that feels like you're earning it. It's just this whole process of what God's doing in your life. As a result, Ephesians 2 says, for good works. Not that you would earn anything. So we have these four good works. We now live in response to what's taking place not in an effort to earn it. So I'm no longer longing for something. We're not living in in, in this effort to create something. We're not living in an effort to earn something. We are living in response to what God has done for us in Jesus. So how do we live this out? We bring this to a close. How do we bring it out? Two things. I want to talk to two groups of you. 
Okay, some of you. And I'm comfortable with that, so cool. Like it might feel awkward to everybody else, so just call it out. We're good. He's, he's good. So two things. There's two groups of us. Some of us have experienced the saving grace. We have come to this place where I've longed for Eden. I've got this longing for Eden, and I've experienced this truth, and I Man, I have faith that what Jesus has done for me will take away my sins. And I've, I've said, this is the time. This is my time to receive that gift. I've been lowered and raised up to new life. I'm there. How do I continue to do these good works and live this out? And look, I want to start with you. It's kind of out of order, but I want to start with you. And I would say, take your next step. You just take your next step. You walk in the newness of life. You take one more step in that direction toward him. For you, it might be like Philip. Like God says, hey, I've put this coworker." I've put this person in your life, and I want you to share the good news of Jesus with them. And for you, it might be, I'm going to start sharing the good news with this person that I love and care about so deeply. For you, it might be like we're going to open our home to be a haven of Christian hospitality and let people come into our home and experience the goodness of God in our home. I know as a church, I've got a practical one for us. And think about it. As a church family, you do this individually, but as a family, we live out the grace of God too. It was brought to my attention from a friend this week through an email. Um, who, who is a uh, chaplain in hospice care. There's this young girl, 15 years old, and uh, her birthday's coming up, and she's going to be 16, and she's isolated, doesn't have a lot of people around her, and I, the first thought that crossed my mind was, man, this fits the sermon perfectly. I'm so glad I got this email. Why? Because we're to be a people who live out the grace we've experienced and extend it to as many people as we possibly can, and so the idea was brought up, and I love it. We're going to overwhelm this girl with a birthday card drive. And I want our church to say we're a people that have been saved and redeemed by the grace of God, and we want to extend loving kindness to as many people as we possibly can. So I'm going to ask you, her name's Liberty. I want you to write her name down. I want you to go buy birthday cards. Don't, don't buy a bunch of money, just cards, encouragement. I want you to write her notes and letters and bring them back here to the church over the next few weeks. During the week on Sundays, just drop them off. Let her know that, man, God, God loves you and he's got a plan for you. God loves your family. Why? Because, look, I know it because I've experienced it. What you long for, you can have in Jesus. Just encourage her. And we'll deliver all of those. It'll be an incredible story of what God's people do when they've been changed by his grace. The second group of people is this. Some of you that have never made that decision. You have never, and I would encourage you, take your first step. You've been longing for this, and you've seen it as you've desired to like, find this next Eden, this next destination in your, but only to come up short. And you've gone through seasons in your life, I'm sure, where you've tried to make your sin out to be not so bad, and it can teach you, and you can grow. And then you've probably even tried to create your own Eden. Like, I can do this, I can work hard, I can create this place. Only to come up short over and over and over again. Maybe this morning you've come to realize, I need a savior, I need a rescue, I need someone to step into this mess with me. And maybe it's your time this morning, like it was for the eunuch. I understand the truth, I believe it and have faith in it, it's time for me to receive it. Maybe today is your day to meet your Savior. We've got everything that you could need to be baptized today. And I would, would encourage you, based on Acts 8, why wait? He didn't wait until he got the family. Or, he just did it as soon as he could. As soon as he had that faith, he did it. And I would encourage you the same way. We've got everything you need. Shorts, shirt. We've got underwear you can keep. You don't have to return it. We don't want you to return it. That would be yours. We've got uh, hair brushes, hair dryers. We've got the whole deal for this to become the best day of your life. As you realize what you've been longing for is possible but only through Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus, for all that he has done for us. God, we don't deserve your grace. 
we've made a mess of our lives. And we're grateful that you give us your grace, that you extend your grace to us. God, we've all felt the pain of longing for more than what this world offers us, the pain that there's got to be more than what is being tossed our way in this life. And my prayer, God, is that you would help all of us have confidence in knowing that you have provided that way. God, if there's someone here today who has not made a decision to accept this gift of grace, I pray that they have the courage to do so, that they would ask the right questions and truly seek. Those of us who have, I pray that we'd leave this place and give our lives as a complete and total response to your grace. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.